Good morning. Uh, Today's reading comes from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, which can be found on page 887 of your Black Chair Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in in Isaiah the prophet. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I, ba- I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by, by, in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Excited to start this gospel with you. So keep your Bibles open, Mark chapter 1. We're going to get going here in just a minute, but um, yeah, just a wonderful, wonderful gospel, and we're going to spend uh, the next several months in this. We're going to take a break right in the middle, and we're, we're going to get back to First Samuel. Remember First Samuel? We'll finish that up at some point. We'll see, you know. And then uh, we will revisit and close up Mark uh, at a later point. So I'm just so thrilled to open up this uh, incredible gospel to you uh, this morning. I want to start with a question. I was thinking about the word gospel, in fact. What feels like good news to you? What feels like good news to you? Maybe it's hearing that a certain football team has won on Saturday or Sunday. Maybe it's getting a call that you overpaid a bill for six months and you're getting a nice little return. Maybe there's mice overrunning your school property and so school is canceled for a week. Yay! Maybe it's a call from the doctor that the cancer is in remission. That would be good news, even great news, right? We love good news. In the New Testament, the word for good news is gospel. The Greek word is euangelion. Good news for the people of the Roman Empire was typically a report of military victory and conquest. And so heralds would offer this good news, this euangelion on the street corners and city centers. And then, of course, the people, they would be encouraged. Now, first century Jews, they were expecting a euangelion, a gospel of some sorts as well. In fact, their first gospel was the great exodus event when God saved them from Egypt and brought them to Sinai and made them his people and crafted a covenant for them and gave them laws and so forth. This was gospel for ancient Israel. This was good news for ancient Israel. 
But then you find something interesting in the book of Isaiah. God promises a new exodus for his people. You get these little glimpses and pictures and promises of a king who would come to rule his people, a servant who would come to suffer for his people. And God would send this Messiah to usher his people from the wilderness and into a new promised land experience. This was their great expectation, this nation of Israel. A new exodus was ahead of them. But of course, they had all kinds of ideas of what this would look like. You remember waking up on Wednesday, November 9th, 2016? Donald Trump is the president of the United States. Like, wow. I mean, it doesn't matter which aisle, you know, side of the aisle you sit on. That was pretty shocking news to much of America, right? Or making summer plans in 2020. <laughs> I mean, wait, I have to stay home and wear masks and maintain relationships by way of this thing called Zoom. You expect one thing, reality is another. Israel understood, and yet they didn't fully understand this new exodus and its Messiah. They thought this king, this servant, this Messiah would offer a military takeover, release them from the stranglehold of the Roman regime. They thought God's kingdom was entirely physical. And so Mark, with this gospel, steps in and shows how this Jesus fulfills and yet transforms these Old Testament expectations. Jesus, as we'll see as we walk through this gospel, Jesus is going to be full of surprises. As we walk through Mark, we'll see the disciples are constantly surprised, constantly challenged by the identity of Jesus. What about us? What are our expectations of Jesus? Is Jesus really good news to us? Or is it only when he conforms to our whims and our wants? Are we open to Jesus even when his identity, even when his authority challenge us? And do we then kind of look for good news elsewhere? Friends, if we find other news more compelling, it's not because it actually is more compelling. It's because we have misunderstood and, and somehow reduced and diminished the identity and the glory of Jesus, right? In steps Mark, again, with this gospel, which is a helpful tonic and corrective to our sinful tendencies that we have. Here's the main point of the passage. You'll see it on your screen in a sentence. The good news of Jesus is that God's Son is finally here, the divine king sent to suffer and conquer. The good news of Jesus is that God's son is finally, finally here, the divine king sent to suffer and conquer. Now, Mark was the first gospel written. In fact, Matthew and Luke's gospel likely based on the writings of the gospel of Mark, and it was written to the early church with Gentile Christians in particular in view. And we'll notice in these opening verses, the great hope of Israel is finally fulfilled, the Messiah has arrived. And so this is an unusual sermon in some ways because I want to invite you as we walk through these verses, I want to invite you to do something maybe a little unusual. And that is simply to behold Jesus. Behold Jesus in his authority, in his fullness. We're going to see him as the promised Messiah. We're going to see him as the beloved son. And we're going to see him as the gospel personified. And so I want to invite you, and I'm going to ask you to pray even right now. Pray that you would have the eyes to see Jesus afresh. 
You'll notice some resources at the bottom of your note sheets. Uh, those are some resources that I've used. If you want to explore the Gospel of Mark more, uh, I'd encourage you to consider those, especially uh, I would recommend Sinclair Ferguson's uh, little book on the Gospel of Mark. So here's the first thing we see, the first movement in our passage. We see the promised Messiah is here. The first 15 verses are like the opening to a great concerto. I played violin growing up, so I played these three-movement concertos. And the first movement was always kind of, uh, you know, introducing the melody, introducing the theme. And then the rest of the musical score, if it was carefully composed well, and, you know, typically some of the old school uh, composers, they did it well. And, and they would kind of take that theme, take that melody, and, and kind of reprise it and develop it and explore it further and further into the second and third movements. And so here we have Mark's first movement. And Mark's opening notes speak about the beginning of the gospel about Jesus, who is God's son. Friends, the gospel isn't first a proposition, it's first a person. It's wrapped up in the identity of this man, Jesus. Who is this historical figure, Jesus? What authority does Jesus have? And notice the word beginning in, the, uh, in verse 1. Uh, that doesn't just mean first in sequence. This is the beginning of Jesus' story. It means that, but it also means origin. Okay, it's the echo of creation. So how does the Bible begin in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so, friends, the gospel of Jesus is nothing less than a new beginning with a new creation. This is an unprecedented moment when finally, after centuries and centuries of waiting, the creator of the cosmos steps onto the stage of the world he made to save and to make all things new. So this Jesus, God's promised Messiah, has come to usher not only a new exodus, but a new creation. And we'll see that in a few minutes here. You know, perhaps some of you here this morning, you walked into this room and you desire a fresh start. You want a new beginning. You want a new you. You've been searching for answers. You've been looking for life. You've been wanting a big do-over. Maybe you've made a, a significant mistake recently. Maybe you're looking for a life renovation. Well, friends, you won't find it with a new life coach or a new diet or a new discipline. What you need is Jesus to make you a new creation. That's what Jesus uniquely offers. And so the beginning of the gospel is the start of God's new creation. Jesus, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, he's the firstborn of that new creation. And those of us who are united to Jesus by faith, we become part of that new creation. Now, Mark's aim in this passage is to prove his big claim in verse one, notice his big claim is that this Jesus, this historical figure, is God's son. So what Mark does is he lines up a bunch of witnesses. And the first witness you'll notice is the testimony of the prophets. You'll see that quotation in verses 2 and 3. It's actually taken from two places, not just Isaiah. It's also taken from Malachi chapter 3. And both Malachi and Isaiah speak of a messenger who would come to prepare the way of the Lord. Mark is kind of stitching together these two texts to, to highlight the careful preparation that must precede the Messiah's coming. We know who this messenger is. Look at verse 4. It's John the Baptist. He is the forerunner. He's the voice that's crying out in the desert, in the wilderness. He's preparing the way for the Lord. 
Friends, the coming of Jesus was not an afterthought on God's part. These events aren't coincidental. They are not accidental. This was something God had planned and prepared during the long years of the Old Testament. Now the time has come. And so he sends John the Baptist just as he promised centuries beforehand. And so, friends, one of the takeaways we have here, just, just we'll pause for just a moment. One of the takeaways is that God makes good on his promises, doesn't he? He left us, he, he's left us with confidence-building proof. We cannot ignore the historical veracity of these promises. I mean, too much has come to pass. And so, brothers and sisters, let this build your faith in God. Let this build your faith in God's promises. What he says will come to pass. You can count on that. You can count on that in your darkest days. So the first testimony is that of the prophets. The second is that of John the Baptist himself. Notice verses 4 through 6. Put your eyes on that those verses. Notice God gave John the task of kind of tilling the spiritual soil, getting the people ready for the greatest moment in human history, which is the arrival of Jesus. And how did John till the spiritual soil of these Jewish people in the first century? Well, he baptized and proclaimed a message about repentance and forgiveness. We have to picture this some. I mean, this is, this is kind of a strange and bizarre picture. Here's this wild man out in the wilderness, and he's wearing camel hair clothes and a leather belt, and he's eating these funny things, kind of desert food. And of course, the question is, why are these descriptions here? Why is John, uh, John the Baptist dressed like this? Well, the Israelites would have known, and the readers of Mark's gospel would have known, this is, this is just like Elijah. This is just like the prophets. They wore things just like this. We see this in the book of 2 Kings. And so John was reminding them of Elijah. He, he, was, he was a prophet like Elijah. I want you to imagine watching an American Civil War movie for a minute, and, and all of a sudden the, the camera zooms in on, on a particular person. He's tall, he has a dark beard, and a tall black top hat. We all know that's I mean, like, you don't need subtitles to figure out who that is, right? We all know it's Abraham Lincoln. You recognize him by his clothing. Well, in the same way, everyone can see that John wears the clothes of Elijah. It signals to the people that he's a prophet just like Elijah. Now, this is massive for the first century Jews because there were prophecies about another Elijah coming, Elijah coming back. And so, as they're looking upon this man, they're saying, Oh, this is Elijah. And notice John the Baptist, he's hanging out by the Jordan River. That's no accident, by the way. The, the Jordan was a significant landmark, uh, the, the border between the wilderness and the promised land. So if we're going back into kind of ancient Israelite history, after they escaped Egypt and wandered in the wilderness, the people had to cross this river when they finally reached the promised land, right? And so now with John the Baptist, the, the people are receiving a call to leave their place of spiritual exile and enter the wilderness as a place of preparation for the new promised land. You know, it's interesting, historical records show that some contemporaneous prophets, contemporaneous to John the Baptist, they would lead followers to reenact the crossing of the Jordan River in hopes of anticipating Israel's liberation from Rome. And so, so, so for many of these first century prophets and for the people, Rome was the problem. Israel needed to be delivered from Rome. 
But notice, friends, John points to a different sort of deliverance. Look at verse 4. We see John's message, in that message, the true problem with the Israelites is their sin. John was calling people to a Jordan, to the Jordan River to point them to a spiritual problem, not a political problem, right? Friends, as you look at our present world, at our present cultural moments, what do you see? Do you diagnose a spiritual problem? Do you see sin and folly at the roots? Do you see something else? Our ultimate problem isn't a lack of self-fulfillment or the presence of oppression or an evil political regime. It's sin against a holy God, right? John's worldview is, is, is on the scene for us right here, and, and it's a good one. The way he's preaching, what he's saying is, is helpful, and, and he's speaking about universal truths. Sin against a holy God is our problem. Then I want you to notice in verses 7 and 8, finally, Mark gives the microphone to John. He's got a couple things to say. Let's read these verses together. John proclaims, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Wow. So John wants to make it clear, hey, listen, guys, I'm not the one you're looking for, <laughs> you know. John's not on the stage. He's, he's the guy who's holding the spotlight for the guy who's about to come on stage, right? In fact, he says, notice, he's not worthy to do the most menial task of a slave, which is to untie his sandals. And this is, this is a really astounding statement. We have to kind of take this in a little bit. John was the last prophet before Jesus. He's another Elijah. I mean, his message was absolutely essential. Prophecies were written about this guy centuries before he came onto the scene. And yet, he is lower than a slave to this Messiah. And notice he claims that his ministry was marked by water, the waters of preparation. The Messiah's ministry, however, would be marked by what? Or by who? By the giving of the spirit of salvation. This must have been mind-blowing for ancient Israel to hear. I mean, who has the authority to give the Spirit to people? Only one. Only one. Friends, there is something pressing and vital for us to consider this morning. We are presently, it's September 11th, 2022. We are presently living within the Messianic Age of the Spirit. We can celebrate, we can enjoy the things that John was speaking about here. We see in the rear view mirror what John was seeing just up ahead. Jesus has come and he has baptized us with the Spirit. Listen, friends, the Spirit isn't just a token gift. The Spirit is the down payment of the age to come, right? The Spirit isn't just a guarantee that the new creation is on its way. The Spirit is part of our promised future. The Spirit in us today is the new creation brought back to us from the future. Friends, how much do you revel in this? How much do you think about this? How much do you glory in this? How it should encourage us to be filled with the Spirit of the new creation, right? Just think with me for a moment. Every moment you are filled with the Spirit, 
Every moment you produce the fruit of the Spirit, every moment you bear the gifts of the Spirit or walk in step with the Spirit, you are experiencing a little taste of the new creation. You're experiencing the age to come in the present. This is who and what Jesus was baptizing us with as he came to this planet. So the first notes of Mark's gospel, they play out and they tell of this long-awaited Messiah arriving on the scene very soon, and he's coming to baptize with the spirit of the new creation. Pretty cool, right? What notes do we hear next? Well, look at the next movement, verses 9 through 13. We see that the beloved son is here. So now John introduces another witness to the identity of Christ. This time it's God himself. Read with me these verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Have you ever wondered why did Jesus need to be baptized in the Jordan by John. I mean, we, we kind of see this jarring juxtaposition, right? God's very own son has entered the arena of flesh and blood. He's sharing his life with sinful men and, and women, and, and he like needs to get baptized? Like what in the world's going on? Well, we need to see this moment as the inauguration of Jesus's public ministry as Messiah. God is coming to save sinners. And notice there's no pomp and circumstance. There's no trumpets and fanfare. He comes in lowliness and humility. God in the flesh, standing in the river, in whose waters penitent Jews had washed away their sins, right? And allowing the water symbolically polluted by sin to be poured over his perfect being. This is a scandal, isn't it? Why would Jesus participate in the baptism of repentance when he's not a sinner and he doesn't need to be washed clean? Well, friends, might this be a picture of how Jesus will become our Savior? Jesus is the holy God in that he must identify closely with us, so closely, in fact, that he can bear our dirty sins. He has come to stand where sinners should stand. He has come to receive what sinners should deserve and, and give them his gift of fellowship with God. Mark uses a very particular word in verse 10 for what happens to the heavens. Notice it's torn open. Do you see that? It's interesting. Matthew and Luke's gospel don't use that language. They use the word open. But here we see the word torn open. Now, why is that here? Well, this is once again another fulfillment, actually, of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 64. It says, Oh, that you, God, would rend the heavens and come down. You've heard people say, All hell is breaking loose. I think Mark's saying, All heaven's breaking loose. And that's a good thing, isn't it, in this case? This irreversible tear in the fabric of this world, which results in heaven coming to earth, this is euangelion. This is good news. Mark's gospel begins with the tearing of the heavens, and it ends with the tearing of, any guesses, the temple curtain. Remember this? As Jesus is on the cross and as he dies, the, the temple curtain was a symbol of humanity's separation from God. And so first, the heavens are torn open, and God comes to us. And then at the end of the gospel, the temple is torn so we can go to God. 
These are amazing realities that we see. These are very, very juicy words, and we shouldn't, shouldn't quickly uh, go over them. And then we see in verse 10 what comes from the heavens. The Spirit descends like a dove. That's interesting, that picture of a, of a bird descending or the Spirit hovering. Uh, back in Genesis, the Spirit was hovering over the chaos of the waters at the beginning of time. Now the Spirit's back <laughs> in order to bring new order to a new chaos. Friends, can you think of another time in the Bible when a dove appears? Yeah, the ark, that's right, yeah. It reminds us of the way in which God's judgment came to an end when Noah sent the dove from the ark, and the dove didn't come back, right? Do you remember that? So that dove in Noah's time signaled a new beginning with Noah and his family. And so what we see here, I think, is, is another symbolization, the, the beginning of a, a, a God's new creation with Jesus and his new family. As if God is saying, Jesus is the one through whom I will begin anew again. Isn't this good news for us, friends? With Jesus, we can feel the same fresh start that Noah experienced as he walked off the ark, as he saw that hopeful rainbow, as he received again the covenant, we can feel that same freshness and newness. And then notice God the Father speaks in verse 11. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is not just God the Father saying, hey, Jesus is great and I love you and I affirm you and everybody else should love and affirm him. This is a public declaration by God the Father that's pregnant with all kinds of Old Testament allusions. I'm just gonna point out two for you. There's, there's two primary kind of Old Testament notes that echo in these words by God the Father. The first notes come from Psalm 2, verse 7. It's the note that the son will become a king. It says this, I will declare the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, David's writing this, you are my son. So this is not only filial language, this is kind of coronation language. And what God the Father is saying is this Jesus is my son and he is your king. That's what he's declaring through the words and the illusions of Psalm 2. The other note comes from Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1, which says, listen carefully, behold my servant." whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom I am well pleased. Very similar language, almost identical language, in fact. So here is the servant of God prophesied back in Isaiah who would suffer and bear the sins of others. What's, what is God saying here? God is saying that there's a king that's coming, a Messiah that's coming, but this Messiah must suffer. This Messiah must suffer. And he's also telling us how to look at Mark as a whole. So Jesus is the divine, authoritative, powerful king, the, the Messiah's son. And that's what we see, especially unpacked in chapters 1 through 8 of Mark. But he's also the suffering, tested servant of Isaiah. And that's what we see unpacked in chapters 9 through 16 of this gospel. And so the king has a cross. The servant will also be a king. But how could the divine son, how could this king suffer? I mean, why does he have to be tested? This is the kind of thinking and the feeling that many of the disciples and many of the people in the first century age as they're kind of encountering Jesus, that, these are the questions they were having. In fact, so much so that throughout the, throughout the gospel of Mark, people struggle to put together these two aspects of Jesus' identity, his kingship as well as his suffering. Few would understand it. 
But what I want you to notice, friends, is the Father pulls together these two aspects of Jesus' identity seamlessly right at the beginning of this gospel. This was his plan. Friends, the death of Jesus occurred not because the Jews were uh, misunderstanding Christ or the Romans felt threatened. Jesus died because it was precisely what God wanted. There is no gospel. There is no euangelion without King Jesus suffering and dying. Mark's gospel then takes kind of this unexpected turn in verses 12 through 13. The Spirit kind of leads Jesus to face the onslaught of temptation from Satan, his enemy, in the wilderness. Now, why mention wild animals? Why are we in the wilderness all of a sudden for this testing? The wild animals, by the way, are only recorded in the gospel of Mark. Well, Jesus came to undo what the first Adam had done by sin. When Adam was tempted by a certain wild animal in the garden, a serpent. So here Jesus is, he's in the wilderness and he's got wild animals around him. Centuries later, Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness because they failed a test, because they were unfaithful. And so what, what Mark is trying to establish here is where Adam failed and where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus had to face the temptation, the powers of the darkness in the wilderness in order to win for his people a way back to the tree of life. He passed the test. He became the last Adam. He became the new Israel. And so in these first few verses, Jesus has been christened as king. He's been recognized as the servant of Isaiah. And now we see in just these two verses, he's been tested and he's become the last Adam and the new Israel. Israel. So we can see Mark is establishing his identity, and he's previewing for us the rest of his gospel. And so the stage is set for Jesus's public ministry. Look what happens now in verses 14 and 15. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Here's a final movement, the gospel is here. Throughout Mark, we're going to see these kind of short, pithy summaries of what's happening with Jesus's ministry. Here's the first. Here's the message that he will preach throughout his entire ministry. It's outlined for us right here. And, and I want you to notice these are important words. These are Jesus's very first words recorded in the Bible. And he's essentially saying in summary form, everything that we've already talked about this morning. The good news is all about Jesus. And the good news is what Jesus preached the time is fulfilled. So all the prophecies of old are coming into fruition. The kingdom of God is at hand. The reign, the rule of God on earth is here because the king is here. This was good news. Jesus is basically saying to Israel, everything you've been reading in your Bibles, all of those juicy promises of a new world and a Messiah, the time has come. God's reign is beginning in me on earth. What I want you to notice, too, is Jesus' gospel isn't just an announcement of good news. It includes a call to accept that good news, right? Look at the final words of verse 15. Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. And so, sure, the, the king is here. The kingdom is at hand. But to get into this kingdom, to live under the kingship of this king, you've got to repent and believe, this is how we should respond to the authoritative identity of Jesus. He's the king. If you want to be his subject, you've got to repent and believe. 
We spent a whole 40, 45 minutes on this idea of faith and repentance uh, just a few weeks ago as we looked at John 16 through 21. Uh, and so I want to refer you back to that sermon, but just in summary form, what does it mean to repent? What does it mean to believe? Repenting means turning away from your sin, breaking allegiance with your false lords and kings and idols. And believing is kind of the other side of that coin. It's trusting in King Jesus alone for salvation, making him your new Lord. Friends, this is how you become a Christian. This is how you become a subject under King Jesus. Is this something you've done? You don't become a Christian by attending a church or walking an aisle or checking a box on a card. You don't become a Christian by riding on the spiritual coattails of your parents. You become a Christian when you repent and believe. So is this something you have done? Jesus is crystal clear. You can't have, have it halfway with him. You can't have Jesus as one of your kings. You can't share his authority with others. It's kind of an all, of, all or nothing kind of king. That makes sense, right? He's the God of the universe. And so have you repented and have you trusted in him alone? And for every Christian here in this room, is this the gospel that you proclaim? If you want to be faithful to preach the gospel that Jesus preaches, it should never end with just the announcement of the good news that Jesus has arrived. It must include a call to repent and believe. In fact, if you haven't called people to do that, you haven't preached the gospel that Jesus preached 2,000 years ago in Palestine. Something for you to consider. But I want us to conclude with perhaps the most compelling thing we can do in response to our study this morning, and really as we walk through this amazing gospel, um, simply put, and it's what I said earlier, what's the most important application for this morning for the people of God? I think it's perhaps simply beholding this Jesus. In all his fullness, in all his truth, do you know this Jesus? Do you love this Jesus? Has he grown dull in your affections? Don't forget the notes played in our passage today. You know, we hear a solo trumpet blast at the beginning of this gospel, Mark's own testimony. Verse one, Jesus is the son of God. Then there's this kind of powerful Trinitarian orchestra blast a few verses later with God the Father declaring, this is my beloved son. And friends, that note of Jesus' sonship and authority and glory echoes all the way through Mark's account. We're going to see it. That note just keeps, just keeps getting played all the way through. We hear it over and over again. As Jesus exercises demons and cleanses lepers and heals paralytics, as he forgives sins and befriends sinners and scolds Pharisees, as he stills storms with words and stops lifelong bleeds and raises little girls from the dead, as he casts demons and restores the hearing of those Gentile dogs, as he climbs mountains and unveils his glory, a glory that is far superior to that of Moses and Elijah. And then finally, at the very end, uh, it, it wasn't Peter or John or James who understood the fullness of Jesus' kingship and service. At the very end of Mark's gospel, as Jesus hung limp on the cross, having breathed his last breath, it was a Roman centurion, a Gentile dog, an outsider who finally gets it. 
as if to invite us into the broadness and beauty of the gospel that is for all kinds of sinners, we see the Roman centurion declare powerfully, poignantly, precisely what Mark and the prophets, John the Baptist, and God the Father has revealed to us this morning. This man truly is the Son of God. Friends, will you receive this Jesus? Not the Jesus of your own making, but the Jesus of Mark's gospel. Jesus is not our therapist. He's not our spiritual guru. He's not our life coach. He's not merely our best friend. He is someone entirely other. Will you repent of all other false lords and false gospels? Will you turn away from every competing idol and fancy and pleasure that is not Jesus? And then will you trust Christ wholly? Rest in him fully, depend on him daily, worship him passionately, serve him constantly. Jesus is God's beloved son. He's the divine king who is sent to suffer for sinners and conquer our enemies. Friends, will this be good news for your soul this week? I pray that it would. Amen. Let's take a moment to prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper.